are continuing our, our series, and, and tonight's topic, as I mentioned a moment ago, and just again grateful for God's care for us and preparing us for this, but it's love in a lonely world, and, and, and I know we've been, we've been covering some heavy topics in this particular series so far, but I've, I've done that on, on purpose because I know you, I interact with you, I meet with you, I interact with the culture around us, and, and I just know you know, from an early age, you encounter broken realities in this world, in the world around us, in the world inside of you, in your own home and family and, and friendships. And uh, you know, I just watch this with, with my kids. You know, they're, they're five and under, so they're on the younger end. But just when, when they come in contact with just how this, this world is not as it should be. This is not the kind of designer version that was originally in place before the fall and sin have settled in and affected and touched everything. And, uh, you know, you, you, you kind of experience this in small ways um, from an early age. And there are many children around the world that are mourning the closing down of Toys R Us. Anybody here, you were a Toys R Us kid? My parents like never took me to Toys R Us. I feel like I've just totally missed out on an experience and now it's being, being shut down. I, I have brought my kids a few times to, to Toys R Us. Uh, there is, in the, in the weird world of YouTube, there is a, there's a channel and this guy, he'll take like happy fun songs and he'll rewrite them in minor keys. And so he gave us a little bit of a funeral dirge for the Toys R Us song. So he, he took the I'm a Toys R Us kid song and gave us a, a minor jingle. And I'll just let you guys uh, preview a little bit of that. Anybody got any candles? Cry a solitary tear. <laughs> All right, that's about as much of that as you need. Um, it's also fitting for our topic because you have to be pretty lonely to uh, put the effort into that kind of thing, which I imagine uh, most YouTubers are. Um, but you know, there's there's a big emphasis in the world and the culture around us on friendships, on relationships on having your squad, on, you know, pursuing some relationship with a guy or a girl, right? That's kind of the, the presentation in, in the, the, the TV shows that are aimed at young people, the songs and movies that are being written, you know, the, the, the storyline typically, it follows along with some aspect of either a friendship or relationship. You don't have any movies that are geared for your age that's like just one solitary person out in the, in the wilderness as you trace the events of, of, their, of their life. And, and what, what I found to be a, a little bit interesting, you know, in talking with several of you and, and some college students as well, just how many of you guys have really gotten into the 90s sitcom Friends? Right, um, and and I think there's several reasons why this is the case. You know, this is this is on Netflix now, and so you can you can binge watch all the '90s shows that you want. Um, th this this was a simpler world. I mean, people they actually got together. 
on like one orange couch and they were in one another's apartments. There, there was no internet. It hadn't been invented yet. None of these people had cell phones. If they wanted to call somebody up, they got on a payphone. So life uh, moved much slower, which kind of, it, in some ways, it allowed them to connect even more. But this, this sitcom, it kind of ha- it, it, it portrayed an experience that a lot of people long for. Here's what one of the actors said. Uh, this is from Von Roberts' book, True Friendship. He writes, friends, the sitcom featuring six people in their 20s living in New York attracted huge audience when it was first aired from the mid-1990s and is still shown almost continuously on satellite channels throughout the world and picked up by streaming content as well. What explains this phenomenal success? Perhaps the answer is found in the title of its theme song, I'll Be There For You. Those words capture the dreams of a generation. David Schwimmer, one of the actors, has commented, it's a fantasy for a lot of people, having a group of friends who become like family. For many, that's all it is, a fantasy. 20% of adults admit to feeling lonely at any time, and the same percentage say they have no friend with whom to discuss a personal problem. Commenting on this widespread sense of isolation, Mother Teresa, who spent her life working with destitute people in Calcutta, said that the worst disease was not leprosy, we'll talk about leprosy today, AIDS or cancer, but loneliness. And people are describing this today as an epidemic of loneliness. And it's interesting because Great Britain has just instituted a a, a governmental position, a, a minister for loneliness. And, and, and the New York Times ran an article about this, and they document the fact that, that loneliness is now a major problem among many college and university students. And, and these are young people that are they're living in one another's world and in, in, their, in these tight-knit communities and these concentrated social environments. But you, you can be in a crowd and still be extremely lonely because loneliness isn't about how many other physical bodies are in your world. It's not the absence of other people in our lives. It's the absence of meaningful human contact. Now, the irony here is that Great Britain's solution is let's let's create some like bureaucratic scenario and install some distant governmental official who's, I don't know, does she become everybody's best friend? I don't really know how you solve the problem of, of loneliness in that way. But it just shows that a lot of people are talking about loneliness Today and, and, and really, you could describe the entire storyline of the Bible as a storyline about loneliness. Right? The, the, the Trinitarian God, this God who is forever three persons in a perfect relationship and harmony, creates the world in order to share of of the abundance that they experience and wanting to include others and and bring them in. That's why the world exists and why humanity is made in the image of this relational God. And and what's one of the first things that you hear in in Scripture, right? You hear, uh, this is good, this is good, this is good, and then God comes upon somebody by himself and says, this is not good. I'm going to make someone else. Uh, and, and in that context, it had to do with the, the relationship of, of marriage. But, but sin intrudes into God's creation. And it wreaks havoc 
on relationships. And you, and you see that one of the first things that breaks down is, is, is human beings' relationship with one another and their relationship with God. And now there's distance, there's dislocation, being removed from the garden, there's shame and hiding. And, and the rest of the Bible tells a, a story of a God seeking to reconcile us to himself and to one another. But the reality is you, you can know all of that. You can know all those biblical facts and yet still feel alone. We wonder if we have any real friends. People really know me. They really care. Does God really care? I had this thought from Von Roberts. No doubt every generation has experienced an unfulfilled longing for intimacy, but it is surely greater today, not least because so many pressures conspire to make the forging and keeping of friendships harder than it has been before. Let's talk about some of those pressures, right? Some of them are ordinary, and then they've, they've been around forever. Uh, what, what creates an experience of loneliness? Well, it can be the sin of others in your life. Uh, their ambitions, their motives, and, and you can become a casualty in that. You know, C.S. Lewis describes this as the inner ring, and he says, nothing can make good people bad, like this thirst, this, this craving to be in with, with some crowd, and, and, and if, if you don't fit that agenda, if you don't work in that scheme, for how they're trying to cry, cr uh, climb some social ladder or be impressive to others, right? You, you can be expendable in the process. Somebody that was your best friend for years, you kind of kick to the side because for whatever reason, their, their motivation and desires have moved on without you. Uh, our own sin can be a contributing factor to this experience, right? We, we've messed up. You created some kind of offense. You, you caused people to no longer trust you. Something you've said or done has created them a sense of, I don't know if I really want to reach out to him or to her again. And, and when you're aware that people are disappointed in you, there is no more isolating experience than that. And just realize, in, in some way, people people. I've let them down or I've just not been enough in their estimation and, and there's a sense of withdrawing from that. Um, but there's some additional factors that are in play today. There are, there are cultural expectations for relationships. We have really high expectations for what these things will provide because we've watched all the seasons of Friends and we've seen the sitcom version of what I will be there for you looks like or whatever uh, presentation you've interacted with, but we don't really know uh, what to do when we get together, when stuff is ordinary and it's boring and we don't really know how to communicate. And communicating is becoming more and more of a problem for young people today, even as connected as we are. We live in one of the most technologically connected ages in the history of humanity, and yet rates of loneliness have been skyrocketing. Since the 1980s, there was a lady who wrote a book about this named Sherry Turkle, and she, she titled it Alone Together. And the subtitle is, Why We Expect More From Technology and Less From Each Other. And, 
the, the more time you're used to interacting with a device and relating with people through a screen, the less and less you're able to do that face-to-face. And she actually wrote this book several years ago, and it's, it's interesting how much foresight she had about this. Uh, there's, there's a reality of increased mobility, right? The Thaxtons have lived in five states throughout their life, and, and some, some of you have experienced this as well. I know that there are several in the youth group where you, your family has moved, and, and you're having to kind of reinvent life again and figure out how you're going to do uh, friendships. There, there's a bit of a, a mystery of being included. And I just want to, I'm just throwing this out there as something else for us to be aware of and factor in and how we understand this. Can I just tell you this? Being in is mysterious. Because whatever you think is the in crowd, whatever you think these people, they have something and I'm not a part of that. They go places, they get together, they do things, they seem really deeply connected, they've got all these inside jokes, they finish, finish each other's sandwiches, uh, right? Uh, and it looks like that, they've got something that I don't got. If you were just able to kind of pick yourself up and, and, and survey all the people that you think that they're, they're in on something that you're not, you realize they feel the exact same way that you do. They feel like, I just, I don't, I don't get these people over here. They've got something going on and it doesn't seem to include me. It, it's something that we, we can always long for and never really arrive at and never really grasp, but it creates an isolating experience for us. And there's, there's just the fact that friendship is really hard work. I mean, we're, we're trained by our culture that stuff should be easy, it should be instantly rewarding, and friendship is tough, right? This was, this was true throughout the ages, way back, you know, before Christ was a Greek philosopher named Aristotle, you guys know him, and he wrote this, the desire for friendship comes quickly. Friendship does not, which means most of the time on the front end, you're going to be disappointed, some way there's going to be a disconnect between what you desire and what you're actually experiencing. All right, let, let's turn to Mark chapter 1. Tonight I'm not going to address all the practicals of friendships and relationships and dating and anything else that's attached to that. Maybe we'll consider some of that in the rest of this month. But I do want to speak to the heart of loneliness and more importantly, Jesus wants to speak to you. He's got an agenda for your heart. And in this passage, we witness Jesus' encounter with somebody who had gotten used to being avoided and left alone until Jesus did the unthinkable. So let's read this together. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made 
clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. I just want to draw our attention to three things from this interaction. One is that Jesus cleanses the unclean, Jesus touches the untouchable, and then Jesus takes the place of the isolated, and this is clear in how he cares for this man. So first, Jesus cleanses the unclean. So you have this leper that comes to Christ here, and just to make sure we're on the same page about that, you know, I tweeted out this, uh, I put this on Instagram earlier, on Easter Sunday, NBC aired Jesus Christ Superstar live in concert featuring John Legend as Jesus. After watching one of the rehearsals earlier in the week, Chrissy Teigen, who is Legend's wife, tweeted, John said there would be leopards today, but it's lepers. I uh, am not good with the Bible. So uh, just in case anybody is confused, we're not talking about the animal with spots. We're talking about the people that have spots on their, on their skin. And, and, and leprosy today, there, there's something called Hansen's disease. Um, but leprosy, the way that that word gets used in, in the Bible, it, it covers a variety of these chronic skin conditions. But what's interesting about what this man says when he comes to Jesus, he, he doesn't say, you can make me well. Right? He wants to be healed. And, and you think that's how he would describe it. You can, you can change my skin. You can take this disease away from me. I, I know you could do that if you want to, Jesus. But what he says is, you can make me clean. And Jesus responds by saying not, I will be healed, but be clean. Now, what's going on here? Well, this condition of leprosy, the reason why things are described in terms of clean and unclean rather than just sickness and health is there, there was a concept in Israel that you could be unclean. You, you were allowed in the camp, you were allowed to participate in worship and to draw near to God through the sacrificial system and to be a, a member of the assembly as long as you were clean. But there were different things that you could do or experience, things that could happen to you that would make you unclean for a season of time, which means you, you could not participate in the assembly uh, in the worship of, of Israel. And so that, that was an isolating experience, but maybe you're unclean for a week and then there's an offering that is prescribed for you to present and you, you come back to being in a state of being clean. And you had these designations and, and God was teaching his, his people some principles. He was teaching about the distance that there is between a holy God and a sinful people. And he used year after year to, to form habits and practices to, to help them see this. And so there's a difference between being unclean and clean. And there's also a difference between being clean and holy. Not everybody in Israel was holy. 
Just the priests were set apart as holy. And just the high priest, once a year, could draw near to the holy of holies. And and if we don't understand that, we're not going to be impressed with what Jesus has accomplished to bring us all the way in, to bring people who were unholy and unclean as far as the high priest only dared to enter once a year. But if you had leprosy in Israel, as long as you had this condition, you were unclean, which means you you didn't live in the community. You lived outside of the camp. And, And listen how this is described in Leviticus chapter 13, verse 45. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes so your clothing designates you in this way, and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside of the camp. Can you imagine this? The stigma that's involved, the embarrassment, the isolation. And then you were also totally dependent on, like you couldn't hold a job, you couldn't go about normal life. And so it's just humiliating. You were dependent on charity, and yet the very people who would provide for you had to remain at a distance. Otherwise, they could become unclean. And nobody wants to catch what you've got. Not just the disease, but the separation, the exclusion. And so you were outside of the camp, which is where people would go to the bathroom. And that's where you remained. And there, there's this relationship, and maybe you have felt this way as well. There's a relationship between being unclean and being alone. Maybe that's not the word you would use. But do you know the experience that I'm describing? Have you ever felt unclean? Life becomes complicated and people don't know how to manage that. Like for this man, after a while... People kind of get, it's like, oh, yeah, you still have that problem, huh? Okay. And they don't know how to interact with you. They wouldn't know what to say. And so they retreat away because they feel like you've gotten weird on them. They just, I, I just can't manage those problems. You, you feel complicated to me. And so I don't really know how to carry on a conversation with you any longer. Or you're in a season of suffering and you feel like nobody else understands and so you are lonely in your pain because they haven't experienced what you're walking through maybe you struggle with your appearance with your relational skills with your ability to interact in certain environments they make you uncomfortable you feel like you're always having to analyze your words not sure that you're really well received, you're always managing your head, whether or not people really want you around. 
Or are they just putting up with you? Are they just being nice? And when is that going to run out? You feel shame, rejection. Maybe you were in some kind of relationship with a guy or girl and there was a breakup after that. And that just left you totally confused as to what was that? Why are they treating me this way all of a sudden? It seemed like I was the center of their world and now they won't even speak a word to me? Or you were passed over in their affection? It can leave you feeling unclean. An experience of loneliness can make you feel worthless or, or sometimes a feeling of worthlessness can lead you to withdraw from people. You feel like you can't really be known. If they really knew who you were and what you've done and how you feel and how you think, then, you, then you're sure that they would withdraw from you. Instead, you, you, what you've chosen is on the front end, I'm just not going to let anybody get close. And you're not really sure what, what would they know. What, what is there to know if they really knew me? Because you're nothing anyway. That's how you feel. But here's the good news in this passage. It's, it's nobodies that are exactly the kind of people that Jesus wants around him. Right? That, that's what he says. If you're willing, Jesus, I will. I, I want. I want you. I want to move toward you. He, he, was, he was known as the friend of sinners, all the people that were the outcasts and were gossiped about and avoided and don't be seen with so-and-so. Jesus says, I'm going to attach my reputation to you. I'm going to come over to your house, Zacchaeus, <laughs> little short guy that everybody thinks is greedy and a thief. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm not going to be embarrassed to associate with you. He comes so near. He says that blessed are the poor in spirit. The people who feel like, I'm, I've got nothing. I'm nothing. And Jesus says, okay, that's the prerequisite to have me. Because it's all the people that thought that they were something, that they were somebody impressive. They felt like they were too good for me. Is what Ed Welch says in his book, Shame Interrupted. Jesus help me is one of the most honorable things you can say. The person who has something doesn't ask for help. The spiritually destitute person has nothing. And that is what God requires of us. Before God, you have nothing you can offer Him. All your good deeds mean nothing. We are, after all, unclean. And He is holy and there's no hiding that and there's nothing that we have to do to hide that because there's nothing that we, we bring with us to purchase some kind of relational currency with God. He says, are you needy? Are you desperate? Are you like this man and this is your last resort? Well, then you get me and you can have me. All right, second picture that we see here is that Jesus touches the untouchable. Verse 41, moved with pity or compassion, 
he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And, and the word for compassion, it, it literally means to suffer with, to enter into somebody else's suffering. And if you're ever going to have compassion on, on somebody, it's always going to cost you. And so if you're kind of self-assured and you're comfortable in yourself, you're not going to be a very compassionate person because you don't want to take the risk that's required to actually move toward them and understand them and include them in your world in some way because that's, that's going to affect you and that affected Jesus here as well. But what, what, what he does here, this is striking because Jesus could have healed this man by saying a word. Right? When when a man came to him, a centurion came to Jesus, and he says, my servant's sick. And Jesus says, I'll come to your house, because Jesus was always willing to do that, even with this Gentile man who wasn't just unclean, but would have been excluded from the worship of Israel. This man says, no, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. Just say the word, and I know he'll be healed. And Jesus says, go, he's well, he's better, it's done. Right? That's all that's required here. But what Jesus does, he, he intentionally gets close and he leans forward and he comes into contact with this man. He touches him, which not only would potentially expose somebody to catching a sickness, but that would have made Jesus then become unclean. Right? That's why you stayed away from lepers people because if you came into contact with them, you, you caught what they've got and you don't want what they've got. Not just the illness, you don't want the ostracization that they're walking through. But Jesus pushes past all that and all the barriers and he gets as close as possible and he touches this man at the very point that has caused so much shame in his life. This is radical. This is so deeply personal. This is what Jesus is always doing in the Gospels. And, and, and if you just like have grown up in church and Jesus is, is some guy that we sing about and that you, you know, colored pictures of growing up, just take some time and actually read the Gospels and pay attention to it a little bit because the way that he handled people, it is stunning. This is no ordinary man here. And he was always... He's always, always pressing on people at the very point of pain in their life. Right? He did that with the woman at the well. She'd come there intentionally alone. This is a lonely woman. She came at the very hour when she knew nobody else would be there drawing water because she was a Samaritan, which means, hey, we don't hang out with you people. You people are dirty. And she had a background and a story. And Jesus comes asking her, hey, could, could, you, could you take your glass and your pottery and whatever it is that you have, could you serve me something to drink? And, and that throws her. And she's like, you, you're a Jew and you're talking to me and what's the deal here? And he says, if you knew who I was, you'd, you'd ask me and I would, I would quench your thirsty soul. And she's about to lean into him, and he says, all right, go call your husband. And he touches her at the very place that's brought so much shame and loneliness in her life. It's her own sin. 
And he knows it. And he knows her through and through. But he leans toward her in love. And that's what Jesus is doing for this man as well. This is the God of Israel. This is the God who dwells in the holy of holies that no one can approach. This is the God of the universe coming closer than you could ever imagine. Coming to touch us and to cleanse us. This is the gospel. This is, this is the whole point. God comes and he touches us. And he pulls us close and he draws us in and he restores us to himself and to one another. And so Jesus says, go offer your sacrifice to the priest. And what's that about? Well, that's what's required to do if you're going to get rehabilitated in society. And so Jesus is, is showing not only is your sickness gone, but everything that has removed you from the people in your life is gone as well. I've taken it. I've taken care of it. I've taken it away. But there is there's a certain means that Jesus uses to take this away from this man. That's our final thought. Jesus takes the place of the isolated Verse 43, this is one of those surprising verses. Jesus starts rebuking the dude after he's healed him. Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest, offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Verse 45, but he, this is the man, went out and began to talk freely about it. And spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places. What just happened here? These two guys switched places in this story in terms of their location, right? This man shares his report contrary to what Jesus asked. He spreads news about him. Maybe you've experienced news being spread about you as well and the effect that comes in your life. Now, this is good news, right? This is the right kind of gossip that you think you would, you would want. It's positive. And maybe it's just from his excitement and his joy and being healed. But maybe there's something else going on in there as well. Maybe there's a little bit of self-interest involved. It's not enough just ingratitude Jesus, thank you for healing me. Thank you for putting my life back together. Anything you say, I'm going to do. He comes back into town, and he's got a story to tell. He's got something that's going to maybe win him an audience with the people that he's been away from for so long. And Jesus is being used in the process. But either way, Jesus ends up in desolate places as a result. His, his preaching ministry in the synagogues of Galilee, what he's been doing up until this point in the Gospel of Mark is now shut down. The rulers want to arrest him. Crowds want to find him and use him to get him to do some sort of trick. And he has to retreat into the wilderness. You know that about Jesus? Jesus as a real human being, knew what it was like to be lonely. 
The Bible calls him a man of sorrows. Early in his ministry, he was essentially abandoned by his family. They didn't believe in him. They didn't partner with him and what he was about. They thought he was crazy. At one point, they showed up not to support him, but to seize him and have him committed because they thought the dude is out of his mind in his hour of need. All of his close friends and disciples leave him behind, leave him to suffer alone in the most humiliating and shameful way possible. Here's how Psalm 69 describes this. For it is for your sake that I've borne reproach, that dishonor has covered my face. And I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who approach you have fallen on me. He takes away the leprosy. He takes away the shame. He takes away the exclusion and the isolation. And he says, I'll bear that. I'll take your place. That'll fall on me. And there's another picture from ancient Israel that we should see here. And it's called the scapegoat. Right, so here's the camp. The camp is where clean is allowed, unclean is outside the camp, and the center is the tabernacle where there's holy, and the holy of holies is right in the middle of it all where God's presence was. But the high priest, there would be a lamb that was sacrificed, and there was a goat called the scapegoat, and what he would do, he would touch it. He'd put his, his hands on it, and he would say over it, all of the sin and the shame of the people. And he would pronounce that to be true of, of it in place of Israel and what they deserved. And then they would send the goat out of the camp. And he would take it all away. He would take away all the penalty for their sin. He would take away all the shame and the ostracization that would come from it, and it would walk out into the wilderness never to be seen again, to die. And Jesus on the cross, naked, exposed, beaten, and humiliated, suffered outside of the camp, outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. That's where they would kill criminals, right? not, not within the city, but outside. And he bore our reproach. That's how Hebrews puts it in chapter 13, verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Sanctify means cleanse and make holy and bring you in. And now you belong, not just inside the camp, but in the very middle where God is. That's what Jesus accomplished. And so he says, therefore let us go to him outside the camp 
and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Now, where do you, why do you go there? I mean, wouldn't the answer be, Jesus took our place, he was a scapegoat, he went outside the camp, and he died so that we could be right in the middle of everything, period, end of story, bring the band up and let's sing a song, right? Don't you think that's what you would expect it to say? But it presses further and says, and that's where your Savior is. Go to Him. He identified with you. You identify with Him in His suffering, in His affliction, in His rejection and loneliness. And you bear that reproach. And you threw it all. It's not wasted. It's not just throwaway experiences. I mean, why, why are you going through what you're going through in life? From the small to the big, from the comment that you're not really sure why they say that and how should I read that to my family's crumbling. Why are you going through these things? Is, is God just jerking the steering wheel of life all over the place haphazardly? He's allowing you to be near to your Savior. And so... Jesus not only cleanses leprosy, he transforms it. It becomes something totally different in his hands. It's no longer something that's there to shame you and keep you away. It becomes the very means that he uses to make you more like him. And that's what the Apostle Paul said, right? I want to know him. I want fellowship. I want, I want nearness. I want to know him. I want to know him, the power of his resurrection. Yeah, I do. And I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, out of the city, because I don't have a lasting city here. Right? Whatever it is that we're building here and now, whatever status, whatever stuff, Whatever friendships even, if, if, if they're, they're attached to this earth only, it doesn't last. And God mercifully takes your grip off of these things and it might feel so lonely. It might feel so disorienting and so disillusioning, but he's showing you, you have a savior and you have a city that will last forever where you will belong right in the middle of it for all eternity and no one will be outside. I know that doesn't solve all the problems and the questions and there's a lot of practical stuff that we'll talk through in some of the weeks ahead. But do you see the heart of your Savior here reaching forward and touching your heart? Lord, thank you for the clarity of your word. God, thank you that this is not just a story as helpful and amazing as it is, even as a story. But it's telling us not only what really happened, but we are in this story. We are this man. And you came and said, I will be clean. I, I want you. And may we go to you wherever you are, in the midst of pain, sorrow, confusion, will we go 
to you and have you, your fellowship in greater ways. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.